If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Well, hello once again to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. We have an amazing show for you today. I cannot wait to jump into it. But first, uh, I need to introduce myself and ask my co-hosts to introduce themselves. Uh, My name is Keith Giles. I am the author of Jesus Untangled, Crucifying Our Politics to Pledge Allegiance to the Lamb and several other books. And I am joined by my friends Jamal and Matt. Hey, guys, say hi and introduce yourselves. Hi, this is Jamal Javanji. I'm author of Free to Love. I'm also a, a huge Ohio State Buckeye fan. So congrats to them for beating Michigan this week. And I am uh, Matt DiStefano, uh, author of From the Blood of Abel and a couple other books. And want to start off by saying we are brought to you by uh, the Unfundamentalist blog. And Unfundamentalist is a group focused on following Jesus' commands to love God and neighbor and is dedicated to opposing the toxic, power-mongering, fear-inflaming nonsense that is inherent in economic, political, societal, and religious fundamentalism. You can find them at... uh, Yeah, that's a great sentence. Gosh. It is Um, a man. I'm all fired up. Yeah, my tip of the hat to Dan Wilkinson. I think he wrote that. Um, find them online at facebook.com backslash unfundamentalists and read the blog at unfundamentalists. There's an S at the end there, unfundamentalists.com. Uh, love those folks. And also, please, I want to make a mention of our Heretic Happy Hour Facebook group. Uh, if we've got any listeners out there who are not involved in the Facebook group, just go into that search bar, search Heretic Happy Hour and uh, click join on that group. You'll be asked a couple questions to make sure that you're not trolling and that you have an actual profile. And once you answer those questions, you can get in on the conversation. We do polls, we post memes, and we post links. And uh, obviously, we post the podcast in there. Uh, We just want to make this a huge communal effort. And the more people that join, the better this conversation will get. And so please uh, if you like Facebook groups, get on in there. Heretic Happy Hour Facebook group, we'd love to have you in there. And I think my friend Jamal has to mention something here that we haven't mentioned before. Yeah, guys, I have a um, a breaking announcement, breaking news. Can, I don't know if we have a sound effect for that, but like... Yeah, 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 there we go. There you go, um, on the spot. Look at him. This just in. This just in. We have, guys, we have a Heretic Happy Hour hotline. Did you know that? Finally, finally, we got it out. We got it. We, we totally, we totally got it out. And not only that, I have more good news. Okay. Not only do we have a heretic happy, uh, happy hour hotline. Um, but I actually know the number because sometimes I don't know the number, but I actually know the number <laughs> right now And the number, and I'll give it to you guys. You ready? So you might yep. want to grab like, I don't know, some kind of roll. chalk on yep. your chalkboards. Okay. And write this down. I mean, you could use a pencil as well. Or tattoo. You could tattoo it on your... Yeah, but... Yeah, it might take a little longer. So let's... Um, here's the number for the for the hotline. It's 240-3-HERESY or 240-343-7379. Again, that's 240-343-7379. And operators are always standing by. So 
um, feel free to give that a call. And I really, I just, I got this text from a friend of mine. I actually want to give a shout out. She's going to be surprised probably to hear her name on the Heretic Happy Hour. But I want to give a shout out to my friend Taylor, who who had this to say about the Heretic Happy Hour. I was really encouraged and I wanted to share it with us. Uh, She goes, you know, uh, I think that's what I really like about it so much. Three guys with different opinions talking about topics most people won't touch. And you all respect each other. It's awesome. So I was really encouraged by that. And uh, so thank you, Taylor, for that really encouraging text. And if you guys have comments out there or questions or even just disagreements, those are welcome too. feel free to call or text the HHH hotline, Heretic Happy Hour hotline. We will gladly receive that. Awesome. All right. Well, we are also ready to uh, let you guys in on our Heretic of the Week. So typically when we do the Heretic of the Week, uh, in the beginning, we used to just kind of go through historically and uh, kind of catch you up historically on some uh, people who were heretics and what was their heresy and things like that. But uh, lately, we've been able to get some incredible uh, people to come on and do some amazing interviews. And we have a great interview uh, this time for this episode. I'm so excited. We tried so hard to make this happen, and it finally did. And um, actually, I'm going to allow our heretic of the week for this episode to introduce himself. It's the heretic of the week. Hi, I'm John Fugelsang, and I am a heretic. Hi, John. John, this is uh, this is Jamal here, and it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on um, the Heretic Happy Hour. And uh, I've heard a lot about you, and it's uh, it's uh, we're just honored to have you as a guest on the show. And um, part of what we do is uh, we like to interview people um, about you know why they're considered a heretic. We have we've had. Some folks from history and also what people who are alive today that we talked to. And uh, we're excited to have you on as a modern day living heretic. So the question uh, that I would have for you is why would people think that you're a heretic? It's an interesting question because I, I guess it's always, it's usually people calling others heretics. Uh, very few people consider themselves a heretic, I guess. Um, <laughs> this is right. Yeah, a very subjective kind of thing. Uh, well, I would be considered a heretic, I reckon, because, uh, I reached a point where I chose to follow the teachings of Jesus more than following the rules of his various unauthorized fan clubs. That's oh, that's a delicate way of putting it. And uh, when I realized that at a certain point, um, kissing the Pope's ring on uh, all matters papal uh, actually went against the Bible teachings. Uh, for me as a Catholic, and I grew up loving the Catholic Church, there's nothing in the Bible you can use to just to impose celibacy. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible you can use to deny women the priesthood. There's nothing in the Bible, in in my opinion, and I, I've heard all the scriptural arguments you can use to condemn same-sex relationships. Uh, nothing you can honestly use to condemn birth control. Um, nothing you can honestly use to condemn uh, masturbation. Um, I've read all the passages they use, and they're usually taken out of context. So I guess uh, that makes me a heretic when I actually think the irony is that uh, the only way to be a true conservative is to be a radical liberal. <laughs> wow. I don't think I've ever heard um, a statement quite like that. The only way to be a true conservative is to be a radical liberal. But think I, about it. I mean, uh, think about Jesus, the most radical revolutionary uh, of all time in history or literature, depending on what your belief system is. So, you know, uh, I mean, it, the irony is to be a true conservative Christian, to be true to the tenets of Christ, you've got to be a radical revolutionary. That's what he was about. The, the, 
the religious conservative bosses of his era didn't sell Jesus out because he was too conservative and, and, and didn't rock the boat enough. Yeah, you know, that's such an interesting point that you make. And I, I guess... I guess here would be you know a question that I would have is okay and I and I have I have felt similarly about Jesus you know obviously he's a radical he's somebody who um, stirs up the social order but why is it you know just from my understanding of history of church history or just the movement of Christianity the machine of Christianity be it Catholicism or or Protestant you know institutional Christianity why why in your opinion would you say it is so completely different than the 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 ethos so to speak of its founder does that make sense i mean what yeah well i mean things get watered down after many generations you know look at uh look at the catholic church and look at the uh the american government both you could argue were founded by radical revolutionaries and they devolved into bloated conservative bureaucracies mm-hmm. um you know jesus operation was taken over by the people who killed him that would be the romans uh lincoln's political party was taken over by the people who killed him that would be the uh, the extreme conservative white Southerners. I mean, these things happen and movements uh, drift. And that's why, you know, I think that they like to say the, the largest growing religious group in America are Mormons. I, I think the largest growing group in America are people who were relate, raised religious, but now consider themselves spiritual because they're just turned off to the hypocrisy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. I think there is a there's something there's a phenomenon going around called the nuns and the duns, and a lot of um, uh, a lot of evangelical Christians are starting to notice this. I'm sure Catholics are starting to notice it as well. But um, like Pew Research and Barna Research and a lot of these um, research uh, inst- organizations institutions have been doing these spiritual surveys and kind of confirming what you just said, John, uh, that there is a growing segment of the population who, when it comes to that little box you check on the form, you know, your religious affiliation, they're checking the, the box that says none, or because there isn't a box for who they are, right? So they're walking away from uh, those institutional ideas of who God is or who Jesus is. Um, they're not walking away from spirituality or faith. They just have, just have opted out of those very institutionalized kind of forms of it. So I think that's true. I think there is a growing, and I think the millennials, the younger generation especially, uh, are kind of leading that pack of like, they're looking at the church and saying, especially in America, and saying, well, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want that. They, I don't think they're not interested in Jesus, because most of them will say, if you ask them what they think about Jesus, they say, oh, wow, Jesus is amazing. When you ask them what they think about the church, it's like, meh. Because because they're so radically different, right? They're, the the church isn't like Jesus. You know, we're so far away from our founder. Um, it's really crazy. And actually, John, this just happened on my wall on Facebook last night, where I posted something you had said, uh, one of your very famous quotes you did about you know Jesus being a I can't remember the whole thing, but it's you know the whole thing about Jesus being this radically different person than most conservative Christians would ever embrace. And then some people on my wall were arguing about that and like trying to say that, oh no, Jesus, because uh, you say things like Jesus what didn't you know, wasn't sh- slut shaming and Jesus uh, was anti wealth and like what do you mean? Of course he wasn't. And it's just weird to me because, like, you know, a Christian in the first century or the second century would have looked at the Christianity today and just say what? Like we're so 
different from they from what they thought and how they behaved and believed um and it's 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 kind of like maddening that you have to explain to Christians in America who Jesus really was because they really see him as being you know like um like their pastor or their priest so i mean why do you think that is how do i mean are you do you do you, th- do you think it's more about power structures of like it's easier to manipulate people and control people if you kind of give them a watered down Jesus or do you think there's more to it well sure uh, you know i i think that um it, we get a lot far power power structures get a lot farther worshiping Jesus as a god rather than following his teachings, which uh, generally don't favor earthly man-made power structures. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that to this day, he's a, a, a revolutionary character, which means he's threatening to people in power. Uh, all that liberation theology business is all directly from the scriptures. And he was someone who uh, would be very threatening to today's capitalists, today's homophobes, today's war merchants, uh, you know, he, he's someone who'd be very threatening to, to bigots, to scapegoaters, um, to, uh, to men who put down women and believe that women need to be subordinate. You know, let's not forget that, I mean, Jesus was a guy who challenged Old Testament yeah. laws on the death penalty, on uh, food purity, on Sabbath observance, on uh, divorce. He completely overturned the Moses law on divorce and called out Moses for being cruel to women. Yep. And the guy reduced the Ten Commandments to two. Yep. He was clearly a rock-the-boat kind of guy. And um, to this day, you know, if you want to be called a communist, uh, walk around some Christians and talk like Christ. They'll, they'll throw it at you. And, uh, you know, I think it was Hubert Humphrey who said, compassionate yeah. for the less fortunate uh, is not weakness. And, um, and, and it's not socialism. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's the, the crazy, crazy thing. I was talking to a guy the other day who's a pastor of a, of a Protestant church and about how, you know, if he wants to preach Jesus, like if he just opened up the Gospel of Luke and started preaching from the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you know, people in my congregation afterwards come up to me and say, why are you being all political? That sounded like a, a liberal sermon. It's like, no, I'm just preaching Jesus. Like, what are you talking about? Like, so people in America have this filter that we hear things through these political channels when it almost makes us, it makes it, we're almost immune to what Jesus is really trying to say and who Jesus really is, because we're, we're not really listening to him. We're listening to other voices or or people who are telling us what Jesus is like. Yeah. And it's really uh, very, very weird, very confusing. Well, I mean, I'm not interested in telling anybody what they should believe and I'm not interested in telling anybody my definition of Jesus per se. Uh, When I see Christianity used as a shield for cruelty, as a cloaking device for douchebaggery, I'm going to speak out when you're trying to use uh, Jesus or the Bible to justify things that go against the teachings of Christ. Then then I'll call you out on it. You know, I, I don't hate anybody, but I do believe in mocking hypocrites. And um, we, we see it all the time. And, you know, the modern fundamentalist evangelical Christian wing is an atheism factory. Uh, I actually disagree that millennials are the ones checking out. I think Gen X checked out first. And, um, and yet I think the spiritual hunger is still there for many people who know that God wouldn't create gay people only to have them despised, who know that cutting taxes for the wealthy while cutting service for everybody else isn't Christian and is actually bad for capitalism. People who know that, you know, all too often organized religion has been a racket. And um, and so I, I do think that there's a, 
there's a lot of um a lot of discontent out there but a lot of really you know good-hearted people who are called heretics and unbelievers by the pious and it's really not fair because in many cases they're the non-hypocrites they're the loving ones so you know my whole gig is the separation of church and hate i love that <laughs> so um John, you're fearless, man. I, I love something I love about you is that you do have this, uh, like on your radio show. I know you deal with a lot of these kind of people call in and and you know want to argue these kind of positions, and uh, you're fearless in the face of that kind of stuff. And I I love that about you. I love how passionate you are to defend Jesus and defend uh, against the douche, you know, to to point out the douchebaggery, as you say. Uh, so I want to just ha- ask you a little bit, like how. How did you end up this way? Like, I know a big part of your uh, spiritual formation uh, came from your your upbringing, and your parents have an interesting sort of a background as well that kind of uh, shaped that. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I'd be happy to. Yeah. You know, people always say, how can you be liberal and when you were raised a Christian? And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm Christian because I'm liberal. Um, my mother was a nun who uh, grew up in the South. She joined the Daughters of Wisdom order right out of high school and um, became a nurse, uh, the convent through nursing school, and eventually sent her off to work in Africa with uh, lepers and then in a jungle hospital in Malawi. My father was a Franciscan brother. He grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and wore the robes and the rope belt. And um, out of high school, uh, he decided to go and um, and join the religious and uh, join the Order of St. Francis, which was an order of brothers that came over from Ireland in the 1800s to start building schools in the New York area. Um, my dad became a teacher, got his master's while he was a Franciscan brother. And um, my dad met my mom, fell deeply in love with her, but wasn't allowed to tell her. She was uh, sent overseas and he was pen pals with her for many years. Um, when she came back, he finally got her to marry. It's a long, complicated romantic story. And, uh, we were raised to be progressive, free thinking Catholics, which is a bit of a contradiction because there's a lot of uptightness there. There's a lot of repression there, but my father grew up thinking that God was love and raised us to believe that God was love. And you feel God's presence when you engage in unselfish, altruistic acts for other people. My dad had, you know, the Holy Trinity, but his real Holy Trinity was Jesus, Gandhi, Dr. King. And that was, those were his heroes, Jesus, Gandhi, Dr. King. And growing up in my house, that really was very powerful. My, my parents never joined a political party, but they always voted Democrats straight down the line. They weren't crazy about abortion, but they thought criminalizing it was nuts. And I think that that speaks for a lot of older Americans, um, who aren't really addressed in this whole debate. Uh, my father was passionate about social justice, passionate about racial injustice, and um, so I, I had a upbringing that was kind of strange. I was the most politically liberal and the most religiously Catholic at the same time. And it made sense to me as a kid. Then when I got older, it seemed kind of confusing. And then when I got older than that, it really made a lot of sense. It just kind of guarantees you're going to be an outsider. I mean, you're either going to be, you know, you're either going to, if, if you're not being crucified by the Pharisees, you're not really doing your job. Right. Well, John, that that is super, super interesting. I wanted to ask you um, just for the listeners and, you know, I know you're involved in the media uh, today and I would, I'd love to know just a little bit about what you're, what you're a part of, what you, what your work is how, and how, how you got into that. Sure. Um, that, that's funny. Yeah. Usually we do that sort of thing at the top of an interview, but yeah, I do a couple of different shows. Um, 
I do a, a daily radio show uh, for Sirius XM on the Insight Channel 121 that airs um, uh, 2 to 5 p.m. East Coast, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on the West Coast. I host uh, Page Six TV, which is syndicated across the country. That's not political. Uh, that's just jokes about celebrities. I do um, a number of political comedy tours, including the Sexy Liberal Tour with Stephanie Miller. And I do stand-up all over the country. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my career has been all over the place. I've been an actor, a comedian, a writer, a broadcaster. I've uh, been murdered on CSI. I got George Harrison to give his final interview for VH1. I got Mitt Romney's advisor to call him an Etch-A-Sketch once on CNN. I hosted a show on Al Gore's current TV. I was in the movie Coyote Ugly. I did an award-winning documentary for PBS traveling across the country uh, about the American dream. I hosted America's Funniest Home Videos for two seasons, and I was a VH1 BJ. I've, I've got a really uh, very eclectic career, which I like. I've done stand-up overseas for the troops, and I've I've done solo plays off Broadway, and um, you know, in the course of it all, uh, I found early on that when I was asked about religion, uh, people kind of responded. I used to do Bill Maher all the time, and they had me debate Jerry Falwell and, and uh, David Duke, and I began learning that, like, you know, I wasn't alone. That there are other people out there who have a spiritual life, have a a spiritual yearning. And like religious people, but they're really turned off to the hypocrisies of fundamentalism, which is kind of what ruins every religion, right? It's the fundamentalist Muslims, fundamentalist Jews, fundamentalist Hindus. So um, it, was through, it was through doing all the media work that I realized that, uh, you know, I wasn't alone. And there were a lot of people who viewed things the way I did. Yeah, it's, I, I, I'm, I'm, I heard that you were on Bill Maher's show and I'm, that guy has always uh, intrigued me. And I'm um, obviously I know his stance. I mean, he's, you know, he would consider himself, I would imagine, an atheist. Oh, um, very much so. Proudly an atheist, yes. Yeah, yeah. And what was your experience? And I, I also went to Liberty University, Jerry Falwell's You went to Liberty University? Wow. <laughs> I totally did. I did back in the day. And it was obviously it's been we, we forgive him. for that. Yeah, it's been it's been quite the journey wow. so far. But yeah, I got to debate, I got to debate Falwell uh, in, in my late 20s on Bill Maher. Um, and Falwell was a, a revoltingly fake Christian um, whose son is even worse than he is. And that's saying quite a bit. Uh, it always amazes me um, anytime I meet someone from Liberty University because there is a bit of a hive mind, but uh, I've met some really wonderful people who went there before. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's definitely, uh, it's been a journey, you know, processing, obviously as a younger person, when I was there, you know, I, I saw through it though, when I was there, there was a lot of the smoke and mirrors and the, the fear-based mindsets, the fundamentalist ideas, even though I was in the midst of them. I mean, they, I held a lot of those beliefs. Um, it, it never sat well with my, with my heart, with my spirit when I was there. Um, and, and there's so many folks who come out of that, that actually, it actually aids in the deconstruction process, you know? So it's, uh, but I wanted to ask you, like, just as somebody who's, you know, because I see two extremes, like on the Bill Maher show, I, I see folks like Bill Maher who just kind of completely dismiss the idea of God because of folks like maybe, maybe what Jerry Falwell or David Duke stand for. But, but how was your experience as someone who, who, you know, you claim to believe, you know, that you believe in God, your faith is very important to you, yet you you would hold to many of these values that some of those guys like Bill Maher would, would espouse to. How, what was your experience like in just your conversations with him? Uh, did you did you sense a resonation? Um, like what, what what was your experience like? I mean, mo you know, I, I, I know tons of believers and tons of non-believers. And, 
generally uh, adults treat adults with respect. So, you know, I mean, I'm not sure which beliefs he would have that, that I wouldn't have or, or vice versa. Um, cause, uh, I, am not really, I'm not really sure I, I get the question. I mean, Bill has tons of people of faith and believers on his, on his show. And back when he was doing PI, it was even more cause they had to book, you know, 20 guests a week. So, um, I, I've, I've, uh, you know, he's always been a prince to me and, um, you know, and again, I don't, and again, I, they, I go on shows and I'm the one who goes after the fundamentalists, the, the ones who are up there mm-hmm. passing judgment on others and talking about the real Christians and blah, blah, blah. And I'll actually call them out. I'll call out these pro death penalty fakes. I'll yeah. call out these, you know, yeah. these, these w- women hating homophobic fake Christians. I'll call out these trickle down zombies who, uh, just, you know, the, the whole me- the whole the whole mission is and, and John Kenneth Galbraith said um, that the modern conservative was engaged in one of the oldest uh, pursuits of mankind uh, making selfishness appear virtuous and you know the mm. argument you always get from the the Philistines and the fundamentalists is um, well Jesus said Jesus said to take care of the poor and take care of the sick but he never said the government should do it you know they have these arguments they use to justify mm. rejecting the teachings of Christ in the voting booth. I want to vote for the guy who's promising war. I want to vote for the guy who's going to make life harder for poor people. Yeah. I want to be with the guy who's going to lock up more, take health care away from people. I want to vote for the guy who's going to uh, bring back torture. We, we constantly vote against the teachings of Jesus um, to vote for who we like. And Jesus never talked about abortion. The Bible is not against abortion. Jesus did talk about the death penalty. Uh, said only people who've never committed sins are allowed to carry out executions. Said, forgive your enemies. Uh, said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Said, do unto others. Said, forgive 70 times 7. Turn the other cheek. He, he, he actually came out against killing the sinner so many times. But we don't care. People just do what they want to do. They put up a tree in their house once a year. And that's fine. I don't care how hypocritical you are until you start trying to hurt other people. And then I got to call you out for it. I don't claim to be a great Christian at all whatsoever. Uh, quite the opposite. But I do know um, when I'm completely kidding myself. And if you're going into the voting booth and voting against helping the least among us and voting for violence, voting to make the rich more comfortable, and all you're doing is telling yourself, Jesus never told us to have the government do it. We should do charity ourselves. Fine. But then you're saying in the voting booth that you do not want a country based on Christian values, and you are rejecting the values of Christ when you walk into a voting booth. So, you know, go ahead and do it. Just don't claim that voting for Donald Trump's agenda is remotely Christian. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. That's such a great point. Just because Donald Trump will convince you that he doesn't like abortion. Let me tell you, the day that guy bans abortion, there's going to be a lot of ex-girlfriends who kept receipts. You know, uh, it's unbelievable. Honestly, it's it is unbelievable how that argument has completely. And I know folks on the right, I know their intention is to, you know, I think they probably mean well, but it's completely made a fool of what they say they believe. Like it's it's ridiculous. I mean, to the point that yeah. the support of Donald Trump could be the most opposite of what uh, what they would actually even if they were being honest with themselves, they they would never stoop to that level. But yet their belief system. Uh, has led them to to doing the very thing that they would that they would oppose. You know, right? Yeah. I mean, th- I mean, think about that. You know, like like how much? And I say this all the time. Like like you know, by voting for Donald Trump, what part of the Sermon on the Mount have you not rejected? 
what part have you not rejected? And, and you know, I, I go through it all the time. I mean, by voting for Donald Trump as a Christian, what are you what are you really saying? I mean, you're saying that you're okay with mocking handicapped people. Uh, you're saying that you're okay with not just adultery. I mean, publicly humiliating the mother of your children, taking your mistress around town. You're saying that you're okay with bringing back torture. Uh, you're saying that you're okay with um, attacking people who never attacked us. We learned that under Bush. Uh, you're also saying that you're okay with grabbing women by the pussy. You're okay um, with uh, with bearing false witness. Um, you're okay with racism. Five years going on TV saying the first black president wasn't born here with no evidence whatsoever. You're saying that you're okay with disregarding the poor, making the rich richer, hating your enemies. You're okay with defending white supremacists, taking health care away, ripping off Americans with a scam online university. You're okay with celebrating greed and wealth and saying you've never sought forgiveness. You're okay with a guy who talks about his daughter in a sexual way, evicted old folks through uh, eminent domain law. Um, and you're okay as a Christian with turning away Middle Eastern refugees in need. So really, I got to say, if you're okay with all that, maybe it's time to find another name for your religion because Christianity is already taken. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, What's your, you have a great quote. uh, Very preachy and I'm sorry. Oh no, we are. I'm thankful, man. That was glorious. I was going to, you have a, you have a quote about um, Trump not being the antichrist. Do you remember what what you said? Oh yeah. Uh, Trump's not the antichrist, but Christ is the (laughs) anti-Trump. I love that. Yeah, and then no. See, I I love, I just love uh, even the what you what you're saying and the way you're saying it and, and the passion that you have about it because, uh, honestly, for me, I don't get to hear that kind of sanity uh, on, a, on a regular basis. You know, the kind of stuff I hear is the opposite of that. I hear people trying to, sort of, you know, there's a, there's actually here's the metaphor. I've seen this little cheap, crappy Christian toy. Yeah. Uh, it's like a little bendable Jesus. It's like a Gumby Jesus. And it actually says on the on the package, yeah. bendable Jesus. And I thought, that is the perfect metaphor for evangelical Christianity in America. We have bendy Jesus. Just take him, bend him to any shape that you want, and, and you get to call that Christian or get to call that Jesus. But don't you think we all have that to some degree? I mean, all believers are, are buffet practitioners of their religion. I've There's never been a single Christian who followed every rule of the Bible or every teaching of Jesus. It's impossible. You'd have to be homeless. Right. So, you know, we're all... Yes. Yeah, we're all buffet believers. The problem is uh, when you only pick and choose to justify putting other people down. Yeah. Because again, I do not claim to be a good Christian. I do not claim to be devout. I I sin large as anybody out there, although my sins generally involve consent. And, um, you know, I, I don't claim to be better than anyone whatsoever. But I do know the Bible really, really well. And I get really, really mad seeing the faith my parents gave their lives to, devoted themselves to, being used to justify things that have nothing whatsoever to do with Christ. Look, you don't like abortion. I get it. Go ahead and do all you can to criminalize abortion so women who have this procedure are thrown in jail, because that's that's what you're really fighting for. Uh, You're never going to end abortion. You'll just criminalize it. So when you're opposing abortion rights, you have every right to fight to incarcerate women and to allow thousands of new Dr. Kermit Gosnells to open up butcher clinics, because again, you're never going to end abortion. It's always been around. Um, do all you can to make you know women who are pregnant uh, miserable, but don't claim it's Christian, because you know God's the least pro-life character in that book. Jesus never mentioned abortion. Uh, God gives Moses rather gruesome, detailed abortion tips for unfaithful pregnant wives in Book of Numbers. And uh, if you believe in the story of Noah and the ark, you believe God killed every single pregnant woman and their fetus through drowning one day. 
And if you don't think God likes uh, dead kids, there'd be no Passover. So again, right. go ahead and, and don't think these things through and fight against abortion. I understand that. I was, I was young and I understand you know, it, that for many people, it's not a complicated issue. Just don't go claiming that that's your Christianity because the Christ we know talked about not killing sinners. And most of these folks are all in favor of the death penalty. Yeah, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance that goes on out there. Yeah, I wanted to ask, just as we're wrapping up our, our interview, I wanted to ask uh, what specifically um, are you working on now that you'd like folks to know about? And uh, where can people get in touch with, with your work? Oh, you're so kind. Um, well, again, I, I'm on page six TV. That's syndicated around the country. It's nothing like this conversation, I promise. I was a bit more serious here than I planned on being. Usually I'm pretty good at these things. Um, I host a show on Sirius XM Insight every weekday afternoon. That's channel 121. And um, uh, I, my website is johnfeeblesang.com. We just put up our brand new online store full of all kinds of uh, resistance swag and lots of uh, Jesus-centric merch. And unlike Donald and Ivanka Trump, 100% of our stuff is made in America. So, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, And I'm, I'm going to be on tour all through 2018, uh, hopefully coming to a town near you. Awesome. 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 Thank you so much. We re- really enjoyed having you on. Yeah, John. Oh, guys, thank you so much. I'm sorry we're talking in paragraphs there. You understand how it is. You don't really get to have conversations like this too much. And then when you finally get to have one, it's uh, it's kind of liberating. Um, so thank you for, uh, for putting up my uh, my monologuing. No, it's it's beautiful. And really, these conversations are needed. We're convinced of it. That's why, that's why we're doing the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, John. Appreciate it very much. And uh, man, it's a blessing and an honor to have you on the show. Hopefully, we'll have you on again one of these days. Thank you both so much again. I love what you do. And thanks for doing this show. Wow, what a what a great interview that was. Um, thank you, Jamal and Keith, uh, for taking that. Obviously, I wasn't in on that. Uh, you notice I went a little incognito. I was uh, traveling from Nashville back home. Uh, me and my family got sick. And so uh, Jamal and Keith uh, took care of that and uh, did an incredible job. Thank you guys for that. Yeah. Um, so I guess it's time for us to move into our main topic. And we've been mentioning this a few times on multiple podcasts that we are going to get into the biblical canon uh, and what that means. And we're just going to kick back and forth some ideas uh, on what we have, um, the ideas that we have, the three of us, on, on this this notion of the biblical canon. Um, and, and as Christians, especially as Protestants, you know, we, we look at the Bible, it has 66 books, so that's the biblical canon. That's the Word of God, capital W generally, right? Um, but, but and then that was the common spiel that I believed growing up. That was what I was taught. When you do a little research into, into what's actually going on, you realize, you know, Catholics have 80 books, the, the, the Ethiopian church has 81. I think the Eastern Orthodox is right in there. Um, but they don't have just 66 like the Protestants, like we Protestants do. Uh, it's actually quite different. So that was interesting to learn. But before we even get into the Christian canon, I I wanted to problematize. I want to start this conversation by problematizing things even further and mention the Jewish canon, because when you start to research how Jews viewed the so-called canon of scripture, you realize different Jews had different views. Um, <laughs> that that that, did you like that? that? That just came out of nowhere. I didn't. I did MC not plan Matt. that. I promise. <laughs> oh, I got one of. The, I got the trombone. No, but anyway, yeah. I mean, 
you know, we often hear, well, the Jews believe this, the Jews believe that. And that's just such a um, myopic view. Like, that's just not how things go. So when I was doing some research for this, I, I looked into it. And you, you get into things like rabbinic Judaism had the 24 books of the Masoretic text, um, the Tanakh. And then they had what's called this tal- this thing called the Talmud, which was oral midrash. And we mentioned midrash uh, on the last episode where these rabbis would get together. They would discuss the Torah and such, and they would write down their commentaries. They would kick these ideas back and forth. And then that, so that for the rabbinic tradition is holy scriptures. But you get into, let's say, the Samaritans. They had Torah full stop. That's it. Um like end of story, you didn't have all this and, and you get into charism and they had only the Tanakh. So the 24 books. Um, so that just problematizes things even further where we, when we just have this view, like this is Canon end of story. It's like, well, maybe things aren't so easy. And I know Keith, you had something to piggyback off yeah. that to even problematize things further. Yeah. I wanted to also say, by the way, for our listeners, I had a midrash once, but I used this ointment and it's really good. Uh, anyway, that's a bad joke. Uh, oh, there it is. Oh. Okay, no, uh, but in all seriousness, yeah, I do want to talk about the Old Testament. There's a book, I know I've mentioned it a couple of times here on this podcast, and I've mentioned it on my own uh, blog and things like that. Uh, it's a book called Who Wrote the Bible by Richard Elliott Friedman. And this book, uh, it's an incredible book. First of all, it is written by a scholar, um, but it's not written as a scholarly book. So in other words, it's not this boring difficult to understand uh, text. He writes written really honestly like a mystery novel. It's so interesting. And so the mystery though is who wrote the Bible and what he begins to uh, explain chapter by chapter is, and I'm going to try to summarize it for you here because it is a little bit, um, it can be complicated. As I said though, the book is, doesn't, isn't complicated, but um, the ideas, some of the ideas might be. So here, here essentially, if I can, let me explain to you what he's saying in this book. And this is not something he's saying alone, by the way. A lot of Old Testament scholars uh, are in agreement with this theory. The theory is that um, the Old Testament uh, is not, for example, like we, we typically say that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Well, we know that Moses right. probably didn't, like the, the guy Moses probably didn't write all of it. Maybe he didn't even write any of it. Um, and that... Uh, other books uh, of the Old Testament as well may not have all been written like Isaiah, may not have all been written by Isaiah. Uh, and so uh, what they started noting, and the reason why is this is why we have so many Bible difficulties. So like you'll read, well, the Bible says this here. Yeah, but sometimes even in the same book, there's a contradiction to that idea. And why is that? So um, as scholars, Hebrew scholars started noticing uh, these discrepancies, what they began to notice was uh, and then there's evidence for this also outside of the, the text, that what happened was there was a time in Israel's history when there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So Israel was divided. The Jewish people were divided. Some of the Jewish people who lived in Jerusalem around the temple were able to give sacrifice. And so when they wrote down and told the stories of their own people, when they talked about Moses, when they talked about Abraham, when they talked about you know their own history, They told the story in such a way that emphasized the importance of, for example, uh, offering sacrifices in the temple and only in the temple. But people in the northern kingdom didn't have access to the temple. And so when they told the stories about their own people, Abraham and Moses and Joshua and and Joseph and all those guys, um, they told the story in a way that de-emphasized the need 
to offer sacrifices at the temple. So you'll get stories of people offering sacrifices out in the wilderness, just taking some rocks, building it up, offering sacrifice, and God accepted that sacrifice. Um, and Or even flat out saying, God saying, I never wanted sacrifice at all. So, um, and so that's, so you basically had two different versions of those stories. Now, later on when the kingdom was united, someone, and this is the mystery, someone sat down with both of these sets of texts and, and essentially sewed them together into a single book. And we can, we can demonstrate this. And in the book, he demonstrates it. He'll show you a passage in Genesis, for example. And on the left-hand column, we'll show you this is, this is a complete text uh, with one viewpoint. And on the right-hand side is a different text from, from a northern kingdom author, for example, who had a different perspective and how that these were kind of literally sewn together into make, to make one book. So that's another wrinkle, uh, another theory in the fact that we don't have a unified voice, even in the Old Testament scriptures. What we have is a variety of voices that are sometimes not even, they're not even attempting to uh, reconcile those discrepancies, they're just giving you both sides of the story and letting you read it for yourself and make up your own mind. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And that's that's a great point, uh, specifically regarding the fact that there's not been a unified voice. And even in Jesus' day, you know, and, you know, we do, it's easy to like, okay, when we read the Gospels, to look back into the, you know, as we're reading and just assume we kind of project onto the, the context or the culture, then what we what we perceive now. And so obviously now we have most Protestants, you know, Protestants were Catholics. They, they just assume the Bible that the, the exists is the way, you know, that they have perceive it. And, or even, even the way I was taught was, well, before the new Testament was written, you know, we just had the old Testament. It's the same as the old Testament that we carry around in our Bibles. That's the Jewish idea of their scriptures as if it, if, if it's the new Testament just picked off, picked up where the Jews left off, which right. is not, not the case, as you were saying, Keith. Um, in Jesus' day, literally, there was huge debates. This is nothing new. I mean, human beings have a real need for certainty. Human beings tend to really want to have like, you know, they just, I think it's, it's a psych, it's really more of a psychological issue. Pe you know, they, they really want to feel like they have solid ground to stand on. This is how we know what's true. So this idea is, is like the Pharisees, and, and they really, they this was a big debate in Jesus' day. The Pharisees had one set they had a canon, so to speak. Um, they had a, a list of approved writings that they believed were inspired and authoritative. And the, the, so the Pharisees had their their set, and then the, the Sadducees had their set, the Essenes had their set. So there's these different groups running around, and each had a different set of authoritative scriptures, and it was a big debate. And so people would debate, what do we trust? How do we know what's real? How do we know it's true? Everybody's looking for this authoritative thing we can stand on that's external, this external set of documents. And Jesus thought that conversation was so important that he never, <laughs> never <laughs> weighed in. Um, they were always trying to get drag him into that argument, and he never weighed in on it. He never actually said, guys, let me just settle this debate once and for all. Here is the approved set of writings. He never did it because – and, and honestly, I'm, it's tongue in cheek when I'm saying that he thought it was so important. I actually don't think he thought it was important because I think Jesus intrinsically knew – that true authority, what you know to be true, does not come from anything external. It doesn't come from an external set of documents. So uh, really, it's just really interesting. Um, uh, and again, I know we're having this conversation for a reason. We're having this podcast for a reason because Christianity historically has made this conversation ultimate because, uh, but it's really not. And again, that's where this 
this that's why that's why we're doing this podcast right and that and that conversation keith i think you mentioned it before marcion's the first uh christian theologian to to you know to try to put this canon together and and what's interesting about him is that it's only a small select list right i mean it's yeah. um it's it's a certain version of luke it's not what the luke we have right it's a certain version of luke and then it's some of the epistles um of paul and, and i know keith on facebook you've been you've been going crazy a little bit on on these paul letters like posting posting a bunch of stuff and having these great conversations um on paul and what is authoritative of paul and what what is uh, authentic to paul and what might be pseudo um paul um Keith, could you want to mention some about that? Because I, I've I've found that these conversations that you're engaging in on Facebook right now are super interesting, and the different pushback and the different ideas that people have is is interesting to note um, uh, people's different thoughts yeah. on that. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I, I have been posting on Facebook uh, because really because I've been thinking about it for this for this upcoming podcast and. Um, and I get it. You know, some people are emotional. They're not. They're not scholars, and they they feel threatened because I'm I'm saying that some of the letters of Paul, or maybe the Epistle of Peter, uh, aren't authentic. And but, um, but I did actually post some of this on a friend of mine's Facebook page who is a New Testament scholar, and I respect this guy. I mean, I will probably never know the Bible the way this guy knows the Bible. Super smart guy, uh, and I posted some of this on his. Facebook page. And the depressing thing was to get back a response, for example, like, oh, those are liberal scholars who say that. And I'm like, well, okay, well, hey, hang on a minute. Um, so liberal scholars don't, so non-liberal scholars don't care about things like eschatology and language choice and theology. And because that's, that's all that's happening. Like to me, um, there are no, look, facts are not liberal or conservative. They're just facts. And so if scholars Whatever their background is, if scholars look at a text and say, here are my reasons for doubting that Paul wrote these, then, then let's address those issues, not just say, oh, you're liberal and now I'm done. Well, so when I posted this on my friend's page, who is a scholar, um, I got a little bit of that kind of language, like, oh, these are just liberals. Um, and then I said, well, hang on, you know, Martian, I mentioned what you said, Martian didn't include the pastoral epistles, First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus, uh, or Second Peter. and um, and I think there's got to be a reason why. He goes, well, Martian was a heretic, so let's not listen to him. I said, well, yeah, Martian also believed Jesus was the Son of God and the Messiah, so should I dismiss that because it was a Martianite idea? Obviously obviously not everything Martian believed should be dismissed. So once again, let's go ask the question, why is it that Martian excluded the pastoral epistles and Second Peter? Um, I would suggest it's possibly that A, those weren't written yet because they were written much later and he didn't even know about them because they didn't exist or they were written and he, he was aware of them, but he was also aware of the fact that they were not written by Paul and that, that second Peter wasn't written by Peter. And so, um, and by the way, second Peter is the most disputed book in the new Testament for a reason. I, I posted that and someone's, you know, gave me back this liberal scholar stuff. And I'm like, look, Non-liberal scholars have to have a little more game than just to simply say, um, well, if you say that you're a liberal scholar, okay, or to say things like, well, it says right there in the book, you know, it's written by Paul, or it says right there, it's written by Peter. Yeah, don't you think I would have thought of that if I was going to fake the book? 
well, of course I'm going to say I'm Peter. Of course I'm going to say I'm Paul. That's the point of me, you know, trying to write something in someone else's name. And even then, that's not disingenuous. And, you know, Matt, you and I were talking about the fact that that wasn't an unheard of practice back in the day. If you were a disciple of Paul or, you know, Tertullian or Origen, to write something in their name because you had spent time with them and you knew them. And so if you wrote something, you you were kind of given license to say that it was by Paul or that it was by Peter or whoever your your you know your mentor was. Yeah, and <laughs> copyright laws weren't right. what they are now. I mean, come on. <laughs> That's just like yeah, I couldn't I couldn't be like, oh, I studied Rene Girard, so I'm gonna write something as if Girard said it. Obviously, like this is the 21st century. Um to to like throw that back into the first century and it's just anachronistic we're just applying um the wrong context the wrong time period um to something that just wasn't an issue um and i and let's going back to origin like okay origin was a heretic let me concede that for a second but athanasius or athanasius wasn't and he wanted to include baruch uh which is grouped with you know the major prophets a letter of jeremiah not esther and 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 let's go forward to like the darling of protestantism which is martin luther <laughs> right like he he wanted to remove hebrews james jude and revelation so therefore with that logic well since since that's pretty heretical to take out four books of the bible my goodness then in revelation you know this is the book about jesus coming back and just fucking laying waste <laughs> to everyone like i mean <laughs> he wanted to take out that like that's like the the go-to book for like super violent mark driscoll jesus and, and should we just write off everything luther did well if we're going to do that we might as well just write off the reformation right write off the whole 95 yeah. thesis write off everything luther did bullshit come on now right right yeah and, and you know people would lose so much money if we took revelation out come on i mean oh you how many how many uh, copies of Left Behind has been sold? 60 million, 20 million, some un- ridiculous amount. Yeah, so just, as toss- aside, yeah, just as an aside, just as an aside, my firsthand experience of how what a hot topic issue the end times is. I wrote a blog post uh, a couple of years ago about the Blood Moon uh, hoax that was going around, right? And dude, over that that same week, I got over thirty thousand hits on that blog post. A typical <laughs> blog post was like six or seven hundred, you know, people yeah, for me in a right. week. And then right. literally in that week, thirty thousand. It's still the the highest blog post I've ever done in the in ten years. And I was like, oh my gosh, like what the heck? So I guess I, on Pat on Patheos, we need to start writing end time stuff. <laughs> I think I need to start. Maybe I need to write a book. <laughs> anyway, let's go back to the canon. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think, um, and I wanted to say something too about the, the whole idea of canonization. Um, I think unfortunately to say, well, this is, you know, this is the canon. I think it presents a false sense of security for Christians because what it, what it implies is this, that wiser and smarter and more holy men than us, you know, hundreds of years ago got together and prayerfully considered and heard from the Holy Spirit, and they themselves were inspired, and I've heard people say this, by the way, uh, they also were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they were guided by God to choose the books that were in and the books that were out, and they have handed us the God-approved list of books that, that you can fully and completely, without any question, accept as being written by the apostles and being the Word of God. And that just isn't the case. You know, uh, so to say that, oh, this is the canon, 
Therefore, don't stop questioning it. Stop investigating it. Stop looking into it. Um, I think that's not a good thing. So it ends up being, as I realize, we end up having more faith in in that nameless council of men, you know, over a thousand years ago, uh, whoever they were. Our faith is in them that they really did hear from God and that they really did come up with the approved list. Uh, it's almost like we have more faith in that than we do in even the books themselves. Uh-oh. Incoming. Yeah, yeah. And Keith, I'm, I'm glad you, you brought that up because this idea of the canon and really when we say canon, this is what I was taught. <clears throat> and you guys, you know, if you have, correct me if, if you have a different view of this, but the idea of canon is, is this, it, really the word canon means measuring stick. And so the measuring stick is, okay, here's what the early church council, the, 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 there's a church council in the fourth century that pretty much uh, created the Bible as we know it today. So this, this council was using this measuring stick, this canon, so to speak, as to what to include and what to not include in their official set of books. And one of the things that they would use is this concept called apostolic authority. Did it have either apostleship authorship? Did an apostle write it? Were they the authors or did it have um, some kind of apostolic um, validation? So if an apostle didn't write it, was it accepted or perceived to be accepted by an apostle? And did and also did the the, the church now, again, this is where it's church, according to them, <clears throat> did the church right. accept these writings and were, you know, if they were in dispute? They tend to didn't make the canon if these were disputed books. So that's kind of how they decided what was quote unquote inspired and what um, and what wasn't, you know. And I think the problem with that, first of all, for me personally, this it really pisses me off. It it really rubs me the wrong way that another human being dares to have the arrogance to speak on behalf of other people and and to tell them what is inspired and what isn't. It's just ridiculous as somebody saying, "Hey." I know you really liked that movie that you watched and it really spoke to you and brought a lot of life to you, but that's not actually inspired. Like, I'm just want to tell you that it's not inspired and actually it's, it's really bad. As a matter of fact, don't watch the movie because it'll like, like for someone else to tell you, like, as if you don't know, as if your spirit doesn't have a ability to perceive what's true, that you need to be told by an outside group of people, what is inspired and what isn't like, that is the, honestly, it is, it's the, the epitome of, of bullshit. It's the epitome of like arrogance and it's, it's really a control thing. Okay. So that's, I think that's a really big point that I'd love to make um, just off off the, on the start and you have to say, okay, so why would a group, and by the way, I want to touch on this in in a second. Why would a group of only men in the fourth century feel the need to call a council to create a book that didn't exist? For, for, for like the, the first 300 years of Christian history, why would they feel the need to even do that? And, and you have to take for in, into consideration the, the cultural and political situation that was going on. It was really a council that was organized and the energy behind it was from a political ruler, was Constantine, the, the, the ruler of the Roman Empire, who was who adopted Christianity after, you know, first 300 years of trying to snuff it out. In the Roman Empire, they realized they weren't going to stop it, so they co-opted it. Literally, it became the only official Christian religion. Then they wanted to consolidate power, as political rulers do, because it took 300 years for certain offices like bishops and these church leaders, this hierarchical system to rise in order to – but not everybody was on the same page. So Christianity was a monolithic group with lots of different kinds of opinions and ideas. Not everybody believed the same thing or had the same ideas specifically about the way 
of Jesus, which was absolutely contrary to forming any kind of power structures. So the fact that um, Constantine wanted to consolidate power, you would have to marginalize certain groups that weren't going to go along with you. And how do you do that? Well, you, you, you come up with a list of approved documents because there were a lot of other documents floating around that people were reading from and people had written that were actually yep. in circulation. And those were, those were like dangerous to the power structures. So if we come up with this canon, we can exclude a lot of other stuff. And that's, that's, that is a huge motivation behind all of this. Oh yeah. I, I absolutely, man. Totally agree. And thank you. That was, that was great. I, I, my other problem with the, with the whole canonization thing too uh, this this is what pisses me off about the whole when I think about this whole uh, idea of canonizing scripture. It's not just deciding what's in and what's out. It's deciding that God has finished speaking. It's saying that okay, from this point forward, the Holy Spirit stopped speaking to uh, His people. Uh, he stopped inspiring people to think about who He was or to write down and communicate, uh, you know, what how they were experiencing God in their own in their own life. Uh, I mean, to me, that that is what makes me mad. Because I don't, I don't, first of all, I don't think anyone has the authority to say that. I don't even think that the scriptures support the idea uh, that God was ever going to stop, you know, speaking to his people, or that he was ever going to cease uh, inspiring us. So, I mean, I, I would say that you know, he never stopped and that, you know, that you can read the writings of Tertullian and, and yes, even some of the writings of Origen and, and the church fathers and the desert fathers and, uh, you know, like going forward, like even like recently, A.W. Tozer and like these guys are inspired by the Holy Spirit. They are writing things that are true and that are life giving and that are encouraging in our faith. And uh, I don't think God ever stopped inspiring to this very day. And I don't think his intention is to stop. And the whole idea of saying, well, this is the canon of Scripture. It implies that God is finished communicating and anything else you would ever want to know is found in the in the in that bible um and yeah that, that opens up a whole nother can of worms as well i i know um but we can maybe i don't know if we want to get into that or not but anyway that 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 really bugs me and i i don't really like that idea uh that god has finished speaking yeah and and it's it's such a it's such an arrogant idea like and so we assume that when you say okay apostolic authority like okay so the an apostle had to either pen the document in order for it to be inspired or they had to agree with it you really limit things because guess what those apostles died you know they're not here anymore they died pretty quickly (laughs) so it's like are you kidding me? Yeah. Like, are you like nobody has anything to say after that? Like, nobody has anything inspired to say. Um, it's 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 such an arrogant thing. But not not only that, apostolic authority was never a criteria until later. The reason that they would use that as part of the canon to say, "Oh, did an apostle prove it?" is because they were trying to exclude stuff. I from what my some of my research that I've done, that which we'll get into in other episodes, there were over two hundred gospels accounts. Now, again, not. Not everything is apostolic, you know, penned has apostolic authorship. But you got to remember the teachings of the way, the the teachings of Jesus. These these traveled far and wide, and and not everybody obviously was literate. Most people weren't. They didn't write. They didn't read. But the people that were, they were going to write these down, and they did. And these these documents would spread. There were people who taught things, and there were over two hundred of these written accounts of the teachings and sayings and life and the life of Jesus, these are circulated pretty widely. And some of them contain different perspectives, obviously depending on 
who was who was like speaking these things. So, for example, here are two groups. I would say here one group in particular that suffers to this very day because of the canon that created the Bible. I would say is women. Women have been silenced specifically because of this canon. Let me kind of just touch on this for example. Most people have never heard of Mary. Mary of Magdalena. If we have heard about her, we've heard about her in a very obscure. It's just kind of confused with a few other Marys that kind of spring. They, they kind of spring up in the four Gospels, the four out of the two hundred that circulated in that time period. Or, so, or really quick, not to cut you off, but or she gets conflated with um, a prostitute. Totally, uh, which is totally bunk. Which is totally it, bunk. Been totally that that is a total misnomer. Like it was right. started by a pope, Pope Gregory. Right. Who, you know, fifth, fourth, fifth century. But like, anyway, like she, she was considered by the, by many people in the early church, not just, she, not just a, a, one of the closest disciples of Jesus, but she was considered an apostle to the apostles, actually considered by many to be, uh, to, to be, um, the leader of the early church in that way, obviously not in the way, not through an office or the way that it's been constructed, but through through influence, because she was the closest disciple of Jesus. She did not go away after the resurrection. She had a vibrant ministry. She went to Egypt. She taught. Uh, there was entire communities that got established there, and she she presented a an aspect of the way of Jesus, a teaching of the way, like her interaction and relationship with Jesus was unlike any of the other disciples. So obviously what she's going, her understanding of love, her understanding of the way is going to be very nuanced. And it's, it's very, she had, she had something very important to say, and it traveled not only from Egypt, it went, my understanding is it went into Europe, into France, uh, Southern France, where entire communities were established um, and this message of love that was that was promoted through her was very very carefully snuffed out. In a, in a, and again, people would say, "Oh, that's a conspiracy." It was a conspiracy. Like literally, she was silenced to the point where most people know nothing about her, know nothing about her teaching. But she has she she literally shaped Christianity until about the fourth century, and then of course that that what she was teaching and proclaiming. It was literally a different narrative about Jesus in the way. It's like so different than anything we've ever understood or heard about the gospel to the point that now the church structure that developed in the fourth century had to silence those voices. And so what's the best way to do it? You call them Gnostic. You know, again, uh, the documents that were created in her name, the gospel of Mary Magdalene, the gospel of Thomas, these are all Gnostic, considered Gnostic, but they weren't ever supposed to be authored by these people. They were, they were like according to certain teachings. And so like there were entire communities that had a perspective that was different than what became developed in the fourth century. And literally in order to silence those voices, you just simply create a document with a rubber stamp of the Roman empire emperor and anybody who, who believes in documents that don't fit into that canon are now excluded from the empire and your heretics overnight, literally. It's yeah. like North Korea. It's like North Korea shit. Honestly, that's exactly <laughs> yeah. what it is. And we, to this day, yeah, and see, we haven't heard of any of this stuff because of the canon. So I yeah. loathe the canon. <laughs> so listen, uh, that was that was awesome. We're actually going to have a. You, you kind of scooped a little bit. We're we're going to be doing an upcoming podcast on that topic. So so let's put a pin in that for a second. Uh, but I do agree with you. I mean, I absolutely agree with you that the canon definitely one of the things that the canon did do was silence women. That was part of what was going on. That's like these um, the pastoral epistles of Paul, which are in dispute. Uh, that's where we get, you know, some of these um, very anti-women, um, you know, this language. Uh, 
that that honestly I don't think was there. It was not there in the early church, but it kind of crept in later on, uh, it, sadly. And so, yeah, I totally agree with you on that. But the thing about the other thing, it wasn't just that. So uh, it wasn't just about silencing women. Uh, it did do that. But it was essentially about control. Um, and it was essentially about, you know, the church silencing their critics and silencing the voices that they didn't want uh, to be given, you know, uh, any kind of prominence or, or uh, authority. Like, don't listen to those guys, right? They're Gnostics, they're heretics, they're whatever. Um, but, you know, what I wanted to say was like, uh, I was reading this, uh, an amazing book. I think I mentioned this before too. It's a, it's a brand new translation of the New Testament by David Bentley Hart, a uh, phenomenal book. And in the back, he has a section on uh, the authorship of uh, of the epistles, and and so he here I want to read what he says about these disputed letters of Paul. So there's a handful of them that we that scholars would agree, uh, you know, these were written by Paul. So Galatians and Romans and um, you know Philemon, like so these are not in dispute. Totally believe yes, this was written by Paul, uh, but there's some of them. Uh, like Second Thessalonians and Ephesians, and as I mentioned, uh, the pastoral epistles, that there's really good reasons to think that they were written later and, or, and not written by Paul. Uh, and I just want to read what he says about this real quick. He says, um, let's see, he says, of the Pauline letters that most scholars believe were not written by Paul himself, Second uh, Thessalonians and Ephesians and Colossians, um, they do boast substantial coteries of scholars as a minority report, do accept Pauline's authorship. But again, those are in the minority. He says, but while Second Thessalonians echoes Paul's style somewhat, it seems to also be consciously structured upon the genuine First Thessalonians in many respects. In other words, somebody took First Thessalonians and just used it as a template to copy the structure, um, which again, if you were writing a letter for real, you wouldn't do that. Uh, but then back to what he says. He says, also, it seems to be a late text written in response to realities that arose after Paul's time, in particular, uh, the unexpectedly long delay of Christ's return. What is more significant still, it contains eschatological claims of striking exactitude that are not found, not only not found anywhere else in the Pauline corpus, but that seem almost impossible to reconcile with the eschatological language and motifs of the indubitable letters. So in other words, um, one or two things has got to be going on here. Uh, if you want to say... Uh, that Second Thessalonians was written by Paul. Well, then you have to relax your grip a little bit on the inspiration of Scripture, because then you need to leave room for the fact. Again, if you're accepting that Second Thessalonians was genuinely written by Paul, then what you're saying is that Paul had certain ideas about the return of Christ at the beginning of his writings, and later on changed his mind about that and wrote something that contradicted that or added to that. Now. Uh, I'm okay with that. I think that, that that that's possible and probably happens all the time That because they're human beings. We have ideas uh, when we're younger, and the more we learn and study and grow, those ideas change and mature over time. I'm okay with that, okay? Um, but but typically people who hold to this idea that, you know, that the, the word of God uh, is all basically dropped out of the sky and was all dictated every syllable by God— well, then there's no room for Paul to have one idea at the beginning and a different idea developed later on. It's ridiculous. And so you either got to acknowledge that, that that's possible, then you got to relax your grip on it, what inspiration means, 
Or you got to admit that, yep, this, this presents, Second Thessalonians presents new ideas, different ideas, um, and therefore probably doesn't reflect what Paul really did believe. God, I love that sound. Um, yeah, I, Keith, I, I would, uh, <laughs> I would tend to believe that, um, that Paul did have quite a change and a journey that he went on from, um, from that, that moment where he meets the risen Christ. I mean, the, you know, he, he obviously has this huge life altering shift. Um, but when he writes First uh, Thessalonians, and if he wrote Second Thessalonians, when we get to the later um, Pauline epistles, uh, Galatians, Romans, yeah. and I would get my dating from uh, scholar J. Louis Martin. So uh, he wrote this this beautiful book for the Yan- uh, Yale Anchor Bible series um, called Galatians, and he dates it like that, where Thessalonians early, and then you've got Romans and Galatians later. And there is a huge shift in his eschatology. Um, You know, you've got this almost um, sort of scary eschatology in the Thessalonians correspondences. And then in Romans, if you're reading it like like Douglas Campbell reads it, um, you're reading it rhetorically. So you've got Paul's eschatology finally coming in in Romans 5. You've got a complete shift. So that's the first thing I want to say on that. I, I'm not a, a Pauline scholar, and, and I don't carry the way. But yeah, you, you're right, Keith. you got to loosen your grip on things and realize that these are human beings who do go through shifts. We see it in Paul's own writing. Yeah. And the second thing I want to say is that when we have an epistemology, a way of knowing something, how do we know what we know? When we have an epistemology that is like, this canon's correct, we have so many assumptions, way too many assumptions. We're assuming everyone wrote down the stories right. We're assuming that they... Um, the translators got everything right. We're assuming the councils that got together got everything right, that they put all the books together, all these assumptions. Like I would like, there's way too many assumptions for me to say, I'm going to assume all these things. Uh, Again, we've talked about it before. When we have all, when we have these, these linchpins of our faith that are not in the cross of Christ, anything other than that, whether, whether it be our hermeneutics, whether it be what we define as canon, whatever that is, if, if, if that is something other than Christ, once one of those falls, our faith can just crumble. And there is a danger to yes. assuming all of these things that have to happen in order to ha- for us to have any sort of faith. And that's what we see. Uh, Keith, when you're, when you're doing these posts on Facebook, it's like the, the assumption for some people is, well, if, if he says... Um, he starts a letter, Paul, a, a servant of the blah, blah, blah. And, and it's not really Paul. Well, then he's a liar. And, and then it's like, it's like you can already see someone's <laughs> faith unraveling yeah. and they're, and they don't believe that, but, but that's why they're attaching it to that because they can see it. Well, if that's not true, burn the book, you know, gone, uh, off goes Jesus, off goes God. And now I'm an atheist. I mean, it's like, that's how, um, uh, that these, uh, if something other than the cross of Christ is the linchpin, we are doomed from That's the start. Right. Absolutely. And I've said that many times and, I, and I've seen it as well. Like if you make anything else the center of your faith other than Christ, then, then yeah, if you're if the center of your faith is, uh, is the Bible. And when people start to say, well, this book doesn't belong and Paul didn't maybe write that. And maybe this part here is incorrect. Oh my gosh, the whole thing collapses. And now the next thing you know, you're an atheist. 
Uh, or, you know, if you, if you, if it, you make it on the end times, right? Oh, Jesus is coming back and these prophecies are true and all these things. Well, you know, actually maybe it's not even about that. Okay. Well then now you fall away from the faith or anything, right? If you make anything your center other than Christ, uh, I would say you're in trouble. Yeah. And you know, um, I think to, to when we, again, going back to this idea of the need for a canon, in addition to, again, if you look, if you just look at the life of Jesus, you look at the way of Jesus, you see, like I'm going to bring back this women thing back in the focus, because it's like, you would see literally him bringing together male and female together in the way of Jesus. Like this, if we understand Christianity, we understand the way of Jesus, forget Christianity for a second. If we understand just Jesus, the life of Jesus in the way that he demonstrated, you would never get the male dominated institution that got created in his name. And so you literally need a canon to do that. So in addition to the canon representing zero women being all men who just made all these ob- arbitrary decisions. I mean, that's, that's huge. But in, in addition to that, you have the emphasizing of Paul. Okay. And I, I love Paul. I, Paul's great. Paul had an incredible revelation. I don't think that should be discounted at all, but Paul's elementary in many ways to the wider conversation of the new covenant. Okay. And I don't say that to diminish him in, a, in an undue way. He's just a person, just like any of us. He had an amazing revelation, but he wasn't the only one that had this revelation. So when you create when you create a a canon, so to speak, that makes him the only, the sole mouthpiece for the new covenant, it creates a lot of problems because this conversation is not a Christian conversation. This is a conversation for humanity, and there are many people that have something to say about the new covenant that would not be included in the Christian camp. Now, I understand that's heresy here, but we we made this distinction when we created a religion, and in order to have a religion, you have to have a, a certain set of documents. So, for example, Paul's revelation in Colossians 1, he says, this is the mystery, Christ in you, the hope mm-hmm. of glory, which is a beautiful thing. But But again, Paul also says, we no longer view Christ according to the flesh in 2 Corinthians 5. Now, that's a big freaking deal that he yes, said- we no longer view Christ according to the flesh, but guess what? When you hear the word Christ used thrown out there in most Christian language, we're talking about Jesus, the physical person that lived 2000 years ago, even though Paul said in his letter, we no longer view Christ according to the flesh. So therefore we're talking about an indwelling reality. Well, Paul, Paul's revelation of that is very elementary. It's just beginning for the Jewish context, but the Jews this was a huge revelation for him and for this community, but there are other groups in the world that have a very, a much more developed understanding of the internal Christ consciousness that we live by. Hence the people in the East that are viewed as non-Christians today, but guess what? They're, that's a, they have a, in my opinion, have a valid seat at the table to, to talk about this, this reality of the indwelling Christ. We're talking about people who came before Jesus, who actually have this. Understanding. So again, 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 we should, we should be having conversations with all of these people reading all of their writings and seeing the inspiration in them as much as we see it in Paul's writings. Yeah. I wanted to say something about Ephesians and Colossians because like, uh, that's one of the things that, um, as I was studying a while back, and I, I first realized that that two of the disputed letters of Paul are Ephesians and Colossians, which are honestly two of my favorite letters. And my first reaction, this is about a year and a half ago, uh, when I first saw that, I was like, and my heart broke. And I was like, what? Oh, man, I love Ephesians. You know, Ephesians chapter three, about how high and wide and long and deep is the love of Christ that transcends knowledge. I'm like, that is so beautiful. And Colossians about Jesus 
you know, being um, the fullness of, of the Godhead dwells in Christ and all that. And I'm like, man, I love Ephesians and I love Colossians. And my first thought was if, if Paul didn't write those, then I should just dismiss them. Like I can't use them anymore. But then I thought, you know, then, then my thought, my thinking changed. And I said, well, wait a second. Again, um, all right, fine. Maybe Paul didn't write Ephesians or Colossians, but someone did who really loved Jesus, who I would say was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write those beautiful things about who Jesus is and what he's like. And so, well, of course, I'm going to accept uh, that testimony and that those those writings. I don't care if Paul wrote them or not, because to me, what matters is, are they true? And there's something true about what is said about Christ in Ephesians and Colossians that resonates with the Holy Spirit in me that says, yes, this is who God is. This is who Jesus is. This is how much he loves you. This is how you can have an experience with him and know this love that transcends knowledge. So maybe Paul didn't write that. Maybe he did. It honestly doesn't matter to me. Um, because again, to me, the canon isn't closed and it's not, I would say it isn't restricted to somebody who had apostolic authority. Yeah, that Keith, that's beautiful. Um, I think that's a perfect way to wrap this, uh, this puppy up. We've been going a while now. Um, before we do, Jamal, I, I would love to have an episode on Paul because yeah. I was I was like, oh, I love Paul, man. Come on. He's not that elementary, but... <laughs> Shit, let's, um, do, let's do it on Paul. <laughs> yeah, I would love that. Let, let's do that. But um, let's uh, let's tell our listeners before we, we before we bounce here um, about this exciting thing we got coming up. We're having a live show. I'm, I'm up in Northern California. Jamal and Keith and Ralph are down in South, uh, Southern California. And uh, I'm taking my family down to Disneyland, uh, December 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th. And on December 15th, we're going to be having a live show. Yes. You guys, you guys excited about that? It's the first of many. And dude, I'm so excited. And I'm telling you, uh, by the way, if you, I love our theme song. And Barrett is going to be here, the guy who wrote and, and performs that. He'll be here live. We'll have a live sing-along. We want audience participation. We want uh, you guys bring your questions. We'll, have, we'll put you on the podcast. You can ask your questions. Uh, it's going to be so much fun. BYOB. Uh, it's going to be awesome. If you can at all make it, please don't miss it. It's going to be awesome. What's BYOB? Bring, bring your own bottle or Bible. Bring your oh, own Bible. Was, oh, I, Bible. I, I thought it was bring your, I thought it was bring your own bud. <laughs> no. Uh, we're definitely going to hell. Oh yeah. Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about, right? Are, are we going to talk about hell? I think we're talking about hell. Hell yes or hell no. Oh. This is going to be a live episode, guys? Are you serious? Live. That's so cool. So cool. Hey, um, so with the hotline, like, do, people, do we have a hotline? Is there a number for that? Or is it? Uh, Not for that show. Why okay. are you doing this to me, man? Oh, <laughs> oh cool. Oh, <laughs> the, joke, the joke that's never ends. Live, right? That horse is dead. Two four zero three heresy. Hey, this one was fun, guys. Thanks. This is great. Let's go, Buckeyes. Beat Wisconsin this weekend. <laughs>